0: All right, ladies, welcome to this workshop called United in Christ, how the gospel brings people together in a divided world. I think I got all of you and got that piece of paper with scripture on it in your hands. If not, it's right there. And you're also going to need your packets. Um, you'll find the outline and other information on pages 37 and 39 if you haven't flipped there yet. But while you're getting there and getting all settled and organized, I'm going to tell you about my mother. And my mother is a gifted gardener. She has been gardening all her life and whatever plant she touches flourishes. We lived in my childhood home for over 20 years. And by the time my parents put the home up, up for sale, the yard was truly magnificent. So just imagine this with me. There was a white archway off to the side with like a beautiful vine on it. Um, There were flower beds and bushes that were immaculately trimmed. And when they held their open house, this is how beautiful the yard was. The number one question that they got was, who is your landscaping company? And can I get their number? And my mom would smile and say, oh, we don't use anyone. It's just me. She loved it. Loved it. Naturally, their household very quickly. My parents moved out and this new family moved in. And all they had to do was maintain over 20 years of hard work. That's it. They didn't have to buy any new plants. They didn't have to be creative. They just had to maintain what they had been given them. But they didn't. They didn't do it. And the yard fell apart. So weeds grew up, choked the flowers. I mean, bushes kind of went at weird angles. And that vine I talked about, I mean, it's, it's just gone. And when we don't maintain a yard, it will eventually fall apart. But that is true of all of life, right? I mean, I could come up with so many examples, but food and our bodies, right? If we don't maintain our bodies and we just kind of do whatever we want, well, eventually our bodies will fall apart. If you don't maintain your dorm room, I am sorry to say there will be dust bunnies in the corner. Maybe you're already facing this. If we don't maintain friendships, they do eventually fall apart. If we do not maintain, things fall apart. And we'll see in Ephesians 4, that passage we're going to look at together, that Paul, who's the author of this letter to the church in Ephesus, he is urging that church to maintain something. If you know the book of Ephesians, it's six chapters. So Ephesians 4, I mean, that's like in the middle. So the first three chapters, Paul is illustrating and describing, explaining the gospel And so by chapter four, he moves from description to imperative. He gives his very first piece of advice and counsel. And it's this, it's maintain unity, maintain unity. And in Ephesians four, what we'll see today is that God urges Christians to maintain unity because God himself is unified. So I'll say that again in Ephesians four, Paul helps us to see that God urges Christians to maintain unity because God himself is unified. And we're going to see that in three ways. You can see that on your outline. We're actually going to do it by going to the end and then going back to the beginning. So you'll see at first the foundation of biblical unity and then the practice of biblical unity, and then the hope for biblical unity. And my goal is for this time to be theologically rich, but also very practical. Um, And you'll see a time for case studies and even kind of a framework to go through. But why don't I pray and we'll do some Bible study. God, thank you so much that we get to talk about unity. God, you are a unified God, and we are sinful people. But God, thank you that you love us. You sent Jesus for us and that we can learn how to be unified with each other in this broken world and in our broken relationships. Help us to learn how to do this and to bring you glory. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is point one, the foundation of biblical unity, verses four to six of Ephesians four. And then we're kind of on page 37. That's where we're starting. But even though we're going to focus on two verses at first, I want to read all of Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. But for some of you, this might be your first time reading Ephesians, so a few details. So Paul, the author, he's one of the apostles of the early church. He was a man saved by grace, by Jesus Christ. He he was such a religious, zealous man that before he became a Christian, he would hunt them down to put them in jail. But then Jesus interrupted his life and he became zealous for Christ. That's this man. That's the author. And then these Christians in Ephesus also miraculously saved. The the city of Ephesus, it was a major city that was kind of obsessed with magic and the occult. And yet there are now believers in Jesus. So that's where this takes place. And I'm going to read Ephesians 4, 1-6, and I gave you a handout because I kind of want to follow the theme of what Shannon and Megan have been doing. I'd love for you to circle the repeated word one every time it comes up. So let me read that whole paragraph of scripture, Ephesians 4, 1-6. This is Paul speaking. Someone says, I therefore, that's Paul. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So you probably saw that one is repeated over and over again in verses four to six. Well, what is one? I think it can be summarized like this. We have one Trinitarian God. We have one universal church. So let's talk about both of those. First, one Trinitarian God. Paul does something interesting here in these verses. He says, there is one God, but he chooses to illustrate this by saying there are three persons. I think that's really interesting because he did not have to do this. He could have said, we worship one God, which would have been true and fine. But he chooses to emphasize that there are three persons in one God. Look with me at verse four. In verse four, he says, one spirit. And then in verse 5, he says, one Lord, meaning one Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 6, he says, one God and Father. So we have three in one. So if he's doing this on purpose when he didn't have to, why is he emphasizing this? Why does he emphasize the three persons of the Trinity? Well, it's because we worship a God who has perfect unity within himself. We worship a God who is perfect unity within himself. And we see an example of this in the pages of Genesis, like evidence that that we worship a three-in-one God. But that's not all we see in Genesis. We see that God creates us to be like him. Just one example of many would be Genesis 126. In that verse, God says, let us, okay, three-in-one, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay, so that means we are in the image, in the likeness of a three-in-one God, of a Trinitarian God. I think that's why Paul, in the same breath, he mentions that we are members of one universal church because we're supposed to be like this God. So one Trinitarian God, one universal church. that makes sense. And Paul has repeated words for this here. Look back at verse 4. In verse four, Paul says, one body, one hope. And then in verse five, he says, one faith, one baptism. So we are one universal church. And this one universal church, it's made up of people made in the image of the one Trinitarian God. So we could kind of give a definition here then, the foundation of biblical unity for the universal church. What is it? It's our Trinitarian God. That's the foundation. Now, there's an elephant in the room with this, right? Some of you might be thinking, well, Jenny, something must have gone wrong here Uh, because the universal church is uh, not unified. It's divided. It's divided. There are thousands of denominations, right? Well, not only that, but maybe you're thinking, Jenny, I have been in a divided local church before. A church that was so disunified, it split in two. Or I've seen believers leave my Christian fellowship just because of conflict. So one body, one hope, one faith, one baptism. Really? That's not been my experience. This foundation seems like it's broken. And I completely understand those questions. But didn't Paul know this? The Apostle Paul understands disunity I think it's easy to read it and think, well, Paul must be locked away in an ivory tower, just like thinking and ruminating and then saying, go do it. I haven't, but go try and see what happens. No, he has actually done it. He has worked through conflict. We don't have time to look at all the examples of this, but you can look this up on your own. Acts chapter 15, Acts 15. That is a time when Paul worked through conflict and protected the very, very, very baby universal church. Paul understands conflict between Christians. And so I think Paul here, instead of saying something that makes no sense, is instead highlighting a reality that we need to pay attention to. The universal church has unity because of the Trinity and not because we get along. I'll say that again because that's a paradigm shift. The universal church has true Biblical unity because of the Trinity, not because we get along. What do I mean by this? When the foundation of our so-called unity is just based on getting along, this unity is easily lost. So why don't we explore this this train of thought, unity based on getting along. You may know this about me if you have ever been to my home, but I really like single origin, high quality coffee. <laughs> I love it. And if you love it too, oh man, we're going to be good friends. We're going to hang out and I'm going to love you. And maybe you're sitting there and you're like, I kind of hate coffee. But maybe for you it's music or movies. And you find someone who you share an affinity with about a certain kind of movie or music and you're like, oh, like, yes, you're my friend. This is great. Or I don't know, maybe it's Wawa versus Sheets and you get really passionate about whichever one you prefer. And that's great, but what happens? Well, eventually, that that best friend, that soulmate, I mean, they do offend you. They just do. It happens. They say something you really should not have said. Or they say, hey, let's do an early breakfast at the diner, and then they sleep through their alarm and ditch you. Or maybe they attend a different fellowship on campus, and you feel like, where'd they go? So what happens? Well, unity is gone. But Why? Unless she has left the faith, she's still a Christian, right? We still have unity, yet it feels like we don't because it wasn't based on the right thing. Instead of basing our unity on getting along, we need to remember that the foundation of true biblical unity is the Trinity, I included a quote at the top of your outline by a theologian by the name of John Stott. I think this is so articulate and helpful. So follow along as I read this excellent quote. John Stott says, The unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. It is no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the Godhead. Wow. So the Godhead, the Trinity, indestructible. Therefore, even if our best friend says the worst possible thing, if she is still a Christian, we are still unified because the Godhead has not been destroyed by her careless words. Our unity is not based on getting along, on liking the same things, on looking the same way. Our unity is based on the Trinity. So, how does this apply? Well, if you're currently experiencing disunity with a Christian in your fellowship, may I ask why? It could be good to ask some questions. Was, was your unity based on never arguing and never having conflict, on always getting along? Well, may I encourage you to remember the true foundation of biblical unity? because nothing can take away the foundation of unity you have in the Trinity, right? It's indestructible. It's unshakable. It's in our perfect Trinitarian God. So take some time, you know, maybe later or tomorrow in your quiet time, and even just think like, why am I experiencing disunity with this person? What's going on there? And it could be that the foundation was wrong all along. So that's point one on your outline, the foundation of biblical unity. But We started at the end, right? Got to go back to the beginning. So that's point two, the practice of biblical unity, verses one through three. Why don't I reread verse one, just get it back in our brains, okay? So again, this is Paul speaking. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So I already mentioned, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, right, to the church in Ephesus. And by this point of his writing the letter, Paul's done a lot. He has evangelized money. He's planted churches. But did you notice the one detail he chooses to include about his life? Look Back at verse one, a prisoner. That's what he chooses. And he, he gives a reason. He says in verse one, he is a prisoner for the Lord. So, specifically at this moment in his life, he's under house arrest in Rome. So, Paul is a prisoner because he takes his faith seriously. If we put it in today's language, we would say he practices what he preaches. So, we need to see what he has to say, right? What he has to say must be really important. So, in verse 1, he says again, he urges you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So, to urge someone, it's not exactly to command someone, but it is still a strong word. It means to earnestly or persistently try to persuade. So that's what Paul's doing here. He's, he's earnestly, persistently like poke, 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 poke. I don't know if you've ever babysat a little kid. They're very good at poking. So think earnestly trying to persuade the Ephesian Christians do something. And it's right there in verse one. He says a lot in verse one. He says, it's to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So maybe this afternoon you went on a walk. That's great. That's not what Paul's talking about. The Bible often uses the word walk to describe how someone lives. So if you were to open, say, the book of Proverbs, it often employs this language. They'll say, oh, does this person walk in wisdom or folly? They mean, are they a wise or foolish person? So Paul is using the same kind of language. So when he urges the Ephesians in verse one to walk according to the calling to which you have been called, he's saying, hey, Ephesians behave like Christians. Ephesians behave like Christians. Well, what does Paul mean? What have they been called to? Well, it's unity because in Christ, all things have been united In Christ, all things have been united. I mentioned that Ephesians is a six-chapter letter. We're in chapter four. So we got to go back a little bit to Ephesians 2 to see something that Paul has already said in the letter that they would have already read or listened to. And that's in verses 13 to 19. I'm not going to read them, but I'm going to summarize them for you. In these verses, Paul says, hey, you who were once far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hey, you who were once two men, two peoples, you're one. So out of two men, we've got one new man. And then, oh, in Christ, you're also no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens. That language is so beautiful. Christ has united a people in the church. So the Ephesian Christians, really all Christians for all time, they've all been called to unity. Because Christians have been united by Christ in Christ. So when Paul says in Ephesians 4, hey, behave like a Christian, he means have unity. Well, that's great to talk about it, but how do we do it? How? How do we use his language? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Well, biblical unity can be practiced in two ways, as we see in these verses, and it's there on your outline. It's inner character and then outer behavior. So let's explore inner character first. That's in verse two. Look back at verse two with me. It says, we are to walk with all humility, gentleness, and patience. All right. Paul wants Christians to be humble, gentle, and patient. And I think Paul chose these three character traits on purpose. Because if they're absent, disunity will happen. All right, let's take a moment and think about the opposite character traits: pride, harshness, and impatience. Those would be the direct opposites, I think. Pride, harshness, and impatience. And those traits foster disunity, right? I think, I think they all connect and they feed the next one. Think about it. If you're filled with pride, if I'm filled with pride, so we think maybe we are better than someone else, we're probably then going to be harsh with our words and tone and then be impatient with them this can absolutely happen in your Christian fellowship. Maybe it has. Or it can happen among coworkers, even Christian coworkers, because maybe we don't like the job they're doing, or we think we could do it better than them. Or this happens on social media. No matter what platform you're on, I think there will be issues there because it is naturally a disembodied space. It is naturally disembodied. What I mean by that is we are not hearing the voice of someone standing right in front of you. We are not seeing their eyes light up. We're not seeing their maybe shoulders go back because they're so proud of something or, or they're hunched over because they're feeling sad or ashamed. That's all gone. All those emotional physical cues are gone. We've got black and white text. But maybe you're on TikTok or it's an Instagram story, and you're like, "Well, I am seeing their face. (laughs) I see their face saying the words. I see their eyes. But but though you're seeing their body, you you and I were not embodied. We're not embodied. We're not in their living room when they're recording the video. We're on the bus, on our phone. We're in the line at the dining hall. We're in the bathroom. We're we're not with them. And so when we read the post or we see the story and we feel a surge of pride, like they say they're a Christian, they said that thing, don't they know how wrong they are? Well, I'm going to let them know how wrong they are. I mean, that's pride. And in our pride, we harshly respond in a way that we never would dream of responding if they were sitting in our dorm room on our couch. we don't respond with patience, right? Social media is not designed for you to read something offensive and then go, you know, I'm really offended, but I'm going to wait. I'm not going to respond today. I'll pray about what I'll say first. I mean, no, (laughs) no, they do not design it for your patience and your godliness. They want you to be impatient. Do it now. Sin with your words, sin with your post. Oh, I've been there. It's so hard. And we can see how this happens, right? Pride, it leads to harshness. It leads to impatience. And Paul in Ephesians 4 is saying, Christians live a different life. Paul is urging Christians to be unified and to walk in a worthy manner. And that is first seen in our inner character. It starts in here first. It starts in our humility and in our gentleness and in our patience with one another. And ultimately, Paul's just urging Christians to be like Christ. There's so much to say, but here's a little. Christ, he's humble. He's the humble one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and coming down to be born in the likeness of men. That's humility. Christ, the gentle one. He's the gentle one who gently leads those with young, who who self-describes as gentle and lowly in heart, as someone who is never harsh with his children. And then Christ, the patient one, he waits for his children to repent and believe in him. Have you ever wondered why Christ hasn't come back yet? He is waiting patiently for Everyone who's going to follow him to do so, to repent and believe. Christ is humble, Christ is gentle, and Christ is patient. So, how does this apply? Do humility, gentleness, and patience describe you? If I were to sit down with your best friend and say, hey, describe so-and-so, would they say any of those character traits describe you? Maybe you could do that. You could actually ask your best friend to describe you and see if, if your character, your inner character that spills out, if it, if it points to Christ. I, I have done this. I, I asked my husband to describe me. I've asked my friends to describe me, and it is humbling. It is very humbling to realize where you need to repent and be more like Jesus. So I would encourage you to do the same. So that's the first thing. We walk in a worthy manner by our inner character. But but second, we we walk in a worthy manner. You could say we practice biblical unity by our outer behavior. Outer behavior. So look back with me at verses 2 to 3 of Ephesians 4. So there Paul says, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So right there, what's our outer behavior? It's those two things. It's bearing with one another in love and being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So let's do the first one, bearing with one another in love. The word translated here is bearing. It's a very strong word. It implies something heavy and hard to do. So bearing, it's more like enduring and like suffering with someone in love. It is not easy and it is not quick. It's like what Jesus did with us. In Matthew seventeen seventeen. this is after the transfiguration of Jesus, after he reveals his glory to three of the disciples. They're on a mountain. So he comes down the mountain with those three disciples and a man comes up to him and says, Jesus, please cast a demon out of my son. Oh, I already asked your other disciples and they couldn't do it. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 17, 17. He answers this. Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? It's the same word. Jesus says, how long am I to bear with you, to suffer with you, and to endure you? If we are honest, we bear with someone until they mess up, until they offend us, until they are just too much. Jesus bared with us to the cross. He bared with us to the cross, and that is the call, ladies. We are being called to bear with one another in love like Jesus bared with us. This means that when our friend says yet another hurtful comment, instead of assuming the worst, we bear with them in love. We forgive them, and then we talk to them. This means that when a Christian posts something online that we find truly offensive, we bear with them in love. We do not instantly publicly rebuke them. We forgive them. We assume the best and we try to understand what they meant. So that's the first part of our outer behavior. It's bearing with one another in love. But second, it's it's that other thing Paul mentioned, it's being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So I love this word eager because it implies speed. It's that kind of eagerness that maybe sets in when you know a good sale's going on. All right. 70% off clearance sale, like get in the car right now. We're going. Right? Maybe it's not a clothing sale, but maybe it's free Rita's Day. I don't know. There's something that gets you in a car quick. So think of that word. What's our first impulse with unity? Come on, let's go. Let's maintain this unity. That's what's meant there. We have to talk about another word Paul uses. He says maintain. Why? Why is that what Paul says? Notice what he does not say. Paul does not say create. I think that's really important. Paul does not say being eager. Let's go to create the unity of the spirit. Paul says, maintain. Gotta go back to my mom's garden. The new owners, right? What did they not have to do? They did not have to create a garden from scratch. They just had to maintain the one already given to them, lovingly created and maintained for 20 years. Same thing. We are not creating biblical unity because it's based on the Trinity. (laughs) It has a foundation in the Trinity. So it's like God is, is handing us, we could say a garden like biblical unity and saying, hey, I've already done all the hard work. I'm a perfectly unified Godhead, and my son died for you on the cross, and you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, right? We learned that from Megan Roy's. So God has said, I've already done it. Here you go. Maintain it. That's what Paul means there. So how do we do it? How do we maintain our unity we already have in Christ? Because think of that family that inherited my mother's beautiful garden. They did not maintain, so the garden was ruined. So again, Paul has picked this word very purposely. We cannot sit on our hands. We we need to maintain it and eagerly. But what do we do? We pause, we pray, and then we pursue or we put away. So you probably noticed on page 38 of your packet, which I will direct your eyes there now, a chart because I want this to be really practical Like I wanted you to be able to think through a live conflict and and feel equipped of what to do. So on page 38, I'm just going to walk through this and then we'll break up to do some case studies. But the first thing you'll see at the top, I put a frame. I said, put off pride, harshness, and impatience and put on humility, gentleness, and patience because that frames this whole thing. Like, we do not pursue someone to work through a conflict just so we can yell at them. Like, so first, we got to put off some things. We got to put off pride, harshness, and patience and put on that inner character that Paul has exhorted us to do. But then there are things to do. So help, I'm feeling offended. What do I do? Well, the first thing you do is you pause. Here's one scripture for that. James 1.19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. So pausing can look a few different ways. So here's one, pause in your conversation or ask if you could talk about it the next day. I think in our current cultural moment, it feels like the fastest person to speak wins the argument, you know, I can't take a breath, but godliness would say, stop. And it could be that you just take a deep breath in the middle of the conversation. That's a pause that counts. Maybe it's so hot that you, you say something like, hey, I, I don't know what's going on, but I'm feeling really, I don't know, maybe emotional, anxious. Can we, can we delay talking about this until tomorrow? Maybe let's have lunch. That's okay. You're not necessarily running away. That could be really, truly just pausing for the sake of, of godliness. And again, it is pausing with a purpose. I put that there, pause with a purpose to think more about why you're feeling hurt. So again, pausing is not necessarily running away. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. It really could be that you want to approach this conversation with all humility, gentleness, and patience. But we did talk about social media a little bit and the world of the internet. Pause and quit that app. You know, If you quit TikTok and Instagram, it will still be there when you reopen it later you can quit it. You can delete it from your phone. You can turn off your phone. There's so much you can do just to remove yourself. Like I need a breath, <laughs> whatever I just read. You can pause and quit the app, but we don't just pause. We pray. Here are two verses for that. Matthew 6, 8, this is Jesus speaking. He says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And then Romans eight twenty six. this is actually Paul speaking. So our author of the letter to the Ephesians, Paul says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what we ought, what to pray for as we ought, excuse me, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So that first part of the chart, pray for wisdom in your conversation or during your break, pray for deeper understanding about the conflict. So certainly if you're taking a longer break, you're delaying the conversation a day, you might have a lot of time to pray about, and that's awesome. But you in the moment, in your deep inhalation, can say, Lord, help. (laughs) And that is a prayer that the Lord will happily answer. You can do that. Of course, if you are taking that break and you do have more time, ask the Lord for help to understand, to understand where maybe you're coming from, What you're feeling, and that's that next part there. Pray for discernment. So, this could be is what they're saying truly wrong because maybe it is. Maybe what they're saying is really needs to be addressed and is wrong, and you need help seeing that clearly. Or maybe it's the other side is my interpretation of what they're saying wrong because I don't know about you, but when I'm in a heated conversation where I'm feeling like something is wrong, I usually think I'm right. (laughs) I'm always right. Aren't you always right? (laughs) So we really need the help of the Holy Spirit to know where we're just off and like, oh, I think they hurt my feelings, yes, but here's how I am responding wrong. And then in humility, we can say, hey, can I ask your forgiveness for, or can I help you understand maybe where I'm coming from and my interpretation, that's all great. And that can breed unity. One last thing. And again, we could put so much here, but one last thing for this chart is pray for this person. Ask God to help you assume the best. When I am in conflict, I don't really want to pray for the other person because in theory, I'm having conflict with them because I don't really like them in that moment. But oh man, ladies, when you feel strong emotions against someone, if you pray for them, the Lord is so faithful to change your heart towards them. Really. Like I have had moments of conflict where I truly hated them. Like I just did. They felt like an enemy, but over time of praying for them, I moved from, I don't like you to, I feel sorry and sorrowful for this. So it's by praying for them You can allow the Holy Spirit to change your heart towards them, to see them as made in the image of God, as a sinner needing salvation, or being saved by grace because they're a fellow believer. So pray for them. And then this final column, which is probably the most practical, is pursue or put away. I included a few verses for that. Proverbs 19.11 Good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. And then Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And then this is actually just a little later in Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, 26 to 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So these are a couple scriptures that capture the pursuing someone in the middle of conflict or putting away the offense. So here's an example. Let's say you only know them online. I'm sure you know a lot of people only online. I know I do. So ask this question. Will my response bring glory to God and build up the universal church? Friends, if I... Filtered through everything I wanted to post online through this, I would post way less frequently. (laughs) Maybe you would too, because it is so rare that a post in response to something live and maybe yucky online actually brings glory to God. Like, let's be real. So, that would be an example of putting away, like, nope, I do not need to engage. I don't, I can walk away from this. I don't know them. Yep, all done. Put away. But let's talk about in real life, the average, maybe relationship you have. That's the next thing. Put away if you can genuinely forgive them. And especially if this is a first offense. And I put in a disclaimer there, putting away does not mean ignoring sin. That's why I included that verse from Psalm 103. As far as the East is from the West, right? We have a North Pole, we have a South Pole, but we don't have an East and West Pole because they never meet. It's just a circle forever. So as far as the East is from the West, which basically implies infinity because we can never reach it. That's how far God removes our sins from us. So if we choose to forgive someone and put away, it's like that. It's like they didn't sin. We do not hold it against them. We serve on LT with them, on exec. We, we have breakfast with them. Our life kind of goes back to the way it was because we have forgiven them like God forg- gives us. And that does not mean ignoring sin. If you say, oh yeah, I, I forgave them, but you still hate them in your heart or can't serve alongside them, it might mean you need to pray about it more, ask counsel, pursue, talk to them. So that's this next little little block of text to keep the, the gardening metaphor going. Pursue before the weeds rise up and choke it all. Text them and meet up in real life address how you've been feeling with all humility, gentleness, and patience, right? We're not meeting with them to yell at them. We're trying to genuinely express with all humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with them in love, eager to maintain your Trinitarian unity. So pursuing them, it's not like how our culture says to pursue someone who's offended you, which is a lot of not very good godly things, right? It's yelling, it's slandering, it's I don't know, making a Twitter storm happen. I don't know where you are in social media, but it's it's nothing good. Or it's yelling at them in public to shame them. It's a lot of yucky things, or it's just never speaking to them again. Maybe it's none of that outward public stuff. It's more quiet and subversive. So before the weeds rise up, talk to them, talk to them, pursue them, text them. Um, another thing you can do, because sometimes these conflicts are very complicated. You can talk to someone. It is not always gossip to seek counsel of really hard conflicts. If your goal is reconciliation and pursuit, it is okay to ask your staff, can I talk to you about this? Um, and then pursuing that, that friend in all humility, gentleness, and patience. That's all right. So this is not exhaustive, but my goal in this chart was to give you a framework for any time you're feeling offended to think about how can I pause, how can I pray, how can I either pursue or put away? We're going to spend some time here to go through some case studies. Uh, Those are on page 39. I should say that. Um, What you're going to do is you're going to break up into um, small groups of probably max three people. Let's say two to three people. Um, I'll kind of maybe assign different pockets of the room case studies because there are three and your goal in your group is going to be to read through the case study and then put it through the framework and say, okay, if I am this person or this person's my friend, what should they do? Maybe what's going on? What questions could I ask? So in groups of two to three, let's say this half of the room Break up and choose between case study one and two so you can kind of decide amongst yourselves like I'll pick number one or number two so you can pair up or do it in groups of three and then this side of the room choose between case study two and three. So again, do it in groups two and two to three, um, but pick one of the case studies, and you'll have a good chunk of time to discuss it. But then I'll call us back as we do have one last thing to discuss. So break up into groups two to three and and do a case study. All right, ladies, I am sure you could keep talking, and that's great. We are having dinner relatively shortly after this, so keep talking about it. But you probably noticed in your outline, we have one more point, and it's the hope for biblical unity. we got to end there. We're actually going to end right where we began, which is with gardening. And it's that my mom is a gifted gardener, but I am not. <laughs> so my desk in our home, it happens to be at two big windows that overlook a side of our yard that has huge hedges, like my home is 70 years old. I don't think these hedges are 70 years old. They have been there a very long time. <laughs> They're deeply rooted, established, very healthy, very tall hedges. And just like that family, my husband and I, when we moved in, we inherited them. They, they were given to us. All we had to do was maintain them. Uh, but can I tell you guys something? True confessions, I've not once maintained these hedges. And because they were so beautiful and gigantic, I mean, you can really tell at first. Um, But last summer, something very terrible happened, which is vines started to grow up. And if you know anything about vines, they choke everything in their path. They are invasive. And and one day I sat at my desk and I thought, oh, I can kind of see the vines now like, oh, someone should do something about this. <laughs> Notice I say someone, not me. <laughs> uh, my mom, God bless her. She visited and even said, uh, oh, someone should work on these vines before it's a problem. Um, we never did. And so to my shame, there is now a section of hedge that's kind of like really, really tall, really, really tall, it's stunted, it's stunted because last summer we did not maintain When we really should have. So, ladies, maintaining biblical unity is hard work, and we will often fail at it. We will often see the vines slowly creeping up in our relationships and just kind of ignore it. But eventually, we will realize one day that the vines have choked up the relationship. What is our hope? Well, I included on your scripture handout, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, we're just going to read it. I'm going to share with you a few things from it that I hope give you hope. So this is just earlier in the letter, right? Paul speaking, Ephesians 2, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So ladies, you and I were dead in trespasses and sin. We followed the world. We followed Satan. We followed our flesh. We just did what we wanted. And what felt good? Look back at verse four. There's a big but in that verse, right? But God. But God, because he's rich in mercy, because he loves us, he keeps going. Verse 5, even when we were dead, he made us alive with Christ. What can dead people do? Nothing. Nothing. And I think he uses that word on purpose. Before Christ, we were spiritually dead. It means we did nothing to earn our salvation. Look at verse five again. He says this really clearly. He says, by grace, you have been saved. And so if we're not saved by works, we're saved only through the blood of Christ. That means we do not keep God's love because we do good things. This is just not true. He loved us because of Christ alone. And ladies, this gives me so much hope with all areas of my life, right? We can talk about the literal issue in my yard, I can repent of my slothfulness and pick up pruning shears and figure it out and get to work. I can do it, I can, I can change. And I can repent of my pride in my Christian relationships. I can do this, and I can pursue unity with all humility. And when I fail to maintain unity, because I will, and when I fail to assume the best and to pursue my sister in Christ with all humility, gentleness and patience, I can ask God for forgiveness. And for help to maintain this unity and then go do my best and try. That's our hope. You can do this too. Christ has made a way. He has given us a secure and solid foundation in the Trinity. And so we can do this. We can maintain unity with our fellow sisters in Christ. And when we fail, we can repent and try again by the grace of God through Christ. So with that, why don't I pray? <clears throat> God, thank you for this time discussing unity. God, maybe for some of us here, this is a topic we thought a lot about, and for others, it's brand new. For some of us, maybe things are fairly harmonious and, and good. And maybe for some of us, things are a wreck, either online or in person with someone. God, I pray that wherever these lovely ladies are at, that you would help them. You would help them know that they are deeply loved by your son, Jesus, that he bore with them all the way to the cross. And so that they too, in turn, can go out and bear with one another in love, that they can foster true biblical unity with their sisters in Christ on campus, their brothers in Christ on campus, anyone in their church, that they can do this for the rest of their lives.